0: Hello, and welcome to Tardigrade Talks. I'm your host, Dr. Jody Samra, and this is a podcast for anyone interested in cultivating greater psychological health, wellness, and resilience. In each episode, I'll share authentic and thought-provoking conversations with inspiring guests, along with evidence-based skills, strategies, and approaches you can use to cope with the stresses of life and enhance your personal and workplace resilience. In this week's episode, I am very excited to introduce you to Dr. Erin Janais. Aaron is an Applications Engineer Manager at Siemens Digital Industry Software in Saskatoon and comes from a past career in a small tech startup and amazingly led a team that had no turnover in seven years. Aaron is hugely passionate about gender equality and he doesn't just talk the talk but walks the walk in his behaviors as a leader. In addition to being a passionate advocate for the tech industry, Aaron also was a professional a cappella singer for 10 years and excited to hear about the workplace dynamics of being on the road with the band. Um, And Aaron is also the dad of three and the son of a clinical psychologist. We'll be talking about how doing the right thing led to a tweet that garnered huge social media attention the unique questions, ethical and otherwise, that the field of human-computer interaction raises, and the important lessons learned about leadership and team dynamics while working as a professional a cappella singer. A great, big, huge welcome, Aaron.
1: Thank you. It's very nice to be here.
0: It's so wonderful to to have you here. And of course, this is our first time meeting and having a conversation. And and let's just jump to how I learned of you. And so there I was scrolling on uh, LinkedIn and uh, an article came up on my feed and it caught my attention I think because there were so many likes and comments on it and all I saw I don't remember the the specific kind of tagline but it said something like you know woman goes to to quit job and leader says no and it's this like provocative provocative lead-in and let me just turn it over to you to talk about this infamous tweet
1: yeah it turned out to be the very first time that uh, Siemens software had had a viral tweet they didn't quite know what to do about it um I uh, have a small team of technologists, about 14 people who work for me, or work with me, I should say. And uh, one of them uh, was struggling a little bit with, as so many of us have uh, with COVID and remote learning for children and balancing all of those things. And she came to me one morning and and said that uh, she wanted to move to 80% time Uh, And so she said uh, that this was an option available and she can move to 80% time and and have her pay cut uh, to 80% as well. And and I told her that I didn't want her to do that.
0: Why? (laughs) 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 Uh,
1: Lots of reasons. Um, It's funny when you are out there looking at all of the the things happening in the environment, uh, watching the, uh, I think people have called it the, the she session occur as as women are forced or were forced to step back from their careers to be able to take care of children who are at home. You feel a little powerless to be able to affect any change yourself. But here was this situation right in front of me where I could reach out and make a difference. And I had a, a, a first rate employee, as all of my um, um, colleagues are. And she was going to take a hit on her career and her pay to be able to manage something because that all of us were facing. And it really just didn't seem fair. Um, So I told her that uh, she could move to 80% time if she wanted, but that that was still going to result in 100% pay.
0: Wow. And you just did this kind of off the cuff. Did you get any high head high level senior approval on this or did you execute this decision on your own? Uh,
1: Yeah, I took a risk. Um, I I have a great workplace. I had pretty strong confidence that I would have support from my manager uh, who has supported a flexible workplace and recognized that there's variability in performance depending on how much uh, or, or what your home situation is like and what your uh, mental health is like. So uh, I felt reasonably confident. Uh, I also have a fair amount of seniority. And so um, I've been with the company almost 10 years. So so taking a risk like this was something that, that I felt like I could manage. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I did not seek any approval.
0: <laughs> well, that, and that is a risk, right? And it requires this, um, I mean, really kind of Core feeling of trust and safety for yourself, as you know, even being a senior leader that's making a decision. Um, and so, tell me a little bit about just the culture and when you think about the, the kind of work environment that can cultivate taking risks that are out of the typical job description list.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I work for one of the largest companies in the world Siemens has 375,000 employees around the world Wow and uh, yeah primarily in engineering and technology in various senses and it's gone through a lot of challenging times it's had um, uh, it, it's had ethical, uh problems on many occasions it was involved for instance in in the third reich during world war ii in the lead up to it and providing software or hardware to um for military uses and uh it uh, um has uh in more modern times struggled to uh work in international climates where um, bribery is front and center Uh, So it's done a lot of navel gazing over the last 150 years um, and and much more recently. And one of the things that the company has done is uh, start emphasizing from the very top level that the people who work here are valuable and that we want to keep them. And uh, when COVID struck, uh, they did a few things that I thought sent a really strong signal that they were going to be supportive of this kind of work. Um, The first thing was that they gave everybody a bonus. Uh, so instead of uh, you know laying off people the way that um, many uh, companies had to do to manage their bottom line, they, they actually gave everybody around the world a bonus, uh, recognizing that it was uh, more difficult for them and they needed a little bit of additional financial support. Wow. But I frankly think it was more a signal than anything else. You don't give people a bonus and then let them go. <laughs> Unless I guess you're an executive <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but it was you know for me it felt like well, uh, you know this is a company that is trying to tell us um, at every level that they're that they care about ensuring that their employees are happy and healthy. Um, the second thing they did was al- allow workers to go to 80% time and 80% pay if they wanted to. And the third thing they said, was that they didn't actually care about hours anymore. So where jobs didn't rely on, you know, for instance, having to man a desk for a certain number of hours to be available to pick up a phone, um, they wanted people to be measured on their outcomes at work as opposed to their uh, the number of hours that they were put in. And it was that third initiative that I kind of instinctively reached for, um, not even really thinking about it, all I knew in the moment was that it was really important that this woman be supported. Mm. And so whatever um, you know whatever justifications I had to make later on, um, I was prepared to make.
0: it's uh, and and we'll set the stage a little bit for the listeners that you know she didn't just come to you randomly saying she wanted to reduce hours what she expressed was wanting to better balance um, home and personal harmony Uh, there were the stressors of course and you're a dad of virtual learning Um, and so that there was um, you know kind of this this context in the background and what i'm hearing is the values that were permeating through the company. And my goodness, I have not actually heard of any company giving anybody a bonus when when COVID hit. And so, you know, a huge kudos to, to Siemens for really demonstrating through a very tangible action um, what the intent was, as, as, as you so well put it. Um, what happened? What did she say? <laughs> what was her reaction in a moment? And you just tell me how things kind of unfolded.
1: Well, at first, she told me no uh, that she wanted to take the pay cut because then she would feel better about not working, um, and uh, and then you know I I kind of told her I thought that that was wrong, uh-huh. <laughs> um, and and we start started talking about strategies because as it turns out, and, and as so many people on the internet pointed out, because a lot of people uh, you know took umbrage with the way that I framed the conversation or uh or or later on were, were critical of of um the conversation in in that I was making decisions for her um but this was a conversation this wasn't any um autocratic uh decision and what we talked about were strategies for managing her mental load in balancing her uh, need to feel like she was continuing to contribute an appropriate amount to the team, uh, and uh, the pay that she was getting for that work and her family commitments. And what we eventually came up with uh, was that she should just book around 20% of her time as if she were having company meetings. Um, and she could put it on her calendar, however she wanted to do it, and that instead of, of being um, you know, for one of our customers or for an internal meeting, that was actually just going to be for uh, her kids who thought that that was really funny. They really liked uh, being booked into her calendar.
0: it really is a job that that parents should be paid for. (laughs) Yes, exactly.
1: And so she was actually getting paid for that job. Um, And it turned out that that was a really good model. Uh, That allowed her to move forward without that feeling of guilt for, you know, not being there in her job when she could see that her teammates were. Um, but also, uh, you know, continuing to get paid for the valuable work she was doing.
0: Well, and so there was a structure to this. So this wasn't just, okay, you know, do less and get paid the same, and away you go, because I'm going to say the naysayers would say, well, my goodness, you know, I'm a small business. How the heck could we withstand that? Um, But what I'm hearing is there was a structure and approach, ongoing dialogue that kind of established um, what some of those parameters would look like. And I guess my very blunt question would be, Any negative ramifications? I mean, what did you observe in terms of productivity, performance, et cetera?
1: Uh, No, in fact, if anything, I think it had positive ramifications. not only did uh, she continue to perform highly um, in less time, uh, but uh, so did the rest of the team uh, who seemed to really rally around that um, and and feel like uh, they could be More flexible with their time, and it it turns out, I think, in practice, that when you are allowing flexibility for people who are committed to their jobs and interested in in the outcomes that they're able to achieve and and investing in their careers, um, they often do better, um, even if that means that they're spending less time on it. Um, When we work, we don't just work when we sit down to our desk. We're thinking about work in the shower. We think about it uh, as we talk of, through problems with our spouses or friends. Um, it, we don't just turn on and off <laughs> our family life or our, our work life between nine and five. Um, and so I think that recognizing that, that people continue to put mental effort into their jobs um, when they're outside of sitting at the desk in the workplace is something that um, we need to acknowledge a little bit more explicitly.
0: I mean, my goodness, you know, 2020 onwards has certainly I mean taught us many, many lessons. Um, but one of those big ones is we do not hit the stop button on personal life when we show up at work anymore right and, and and nor do we hit the stop button on work when we kind of transition into our home life and and not a far distance these days to go for many of us is there and and so there it sounds like there was this very um, yeah, very kind of flexible approach. and if we look at global best practices, uh, flexibility and adaptability has been um, one of the core, constructs for us to consider. We know that our work environments can be healthier and it's win-win for the organization and the employee when we have flexibility. But COVID has of course taken that to a whole nother exponential level now for us to think out of the box and, and be creative. Um, in your tweet, Erin, you um, shared a Forbes article and that and was sharing the disproportionate impact um of covid on Uh, working moms in particular. And what we know from the data is that um, women's jobs have been almost two times more vulnerable during uh, the pandemic than men's jobs. We know that unemployment rates disproportionately increase. So we take a look that women make up uh, about 40% of global employment, but accounted for about 55% of overall job losses. And that conflict, I mean, so many of us have seen it over the past, you know, year plus on uh, media, et cetera. You know, women saying, I can't meet the needs in my parenting role, in my parenting hat. And so therefore, I need to make some sacrifice at work. Tell me about your kind of feelings and thoughts and and observations as a leader on these disproportionate impacts.
1: Yeah, I guess the first thing is that um, I'm in an enormously privileged field. Most of those job losses did not occur in tech um, or in, in, in white collar jobs, I think. Uh, They they occurred in precarious uh, um, uh, employment positions. Um, But uh, my wife is an academic, and she notes uh, very clearly that uh, there has been a massive surge in the number of articles published by men. And a reduction in the number of articles published by women, and you can actually track it by field, which is really fascinating. So fields that are are, are dominated by women have had uh, fewer publications in journals. They've had a, a struggle to be able to get them. Uh, the other thing that's kind of interesting there is that, and and <laughs> this is going to circle back to to the uh, housework in. Uh, job places, unpaid labor in in job environments, but uh, academic reviews or or peer review system in academia relies on volunteer labor uh, from academics and students. And it turns out that reviews became very much harder to get, um, which tells us that it wasn't the people who were the top producers in the field who have been reviewing all of those papers. It's been the people who were, in fact, Disadvantaged, or at least uh, less um, less prominent and and prolific, who were doing that unpaid labor, and so um, I think that it, you know, in the context of what happened in COVID, it it shone a spotlight on um, challenges that have always been there and amplified them uh, both in their effect, but also in their visibility, and I think that's forced. Uh, people in my position to take a close look at practices across the entire uh, organization to ensure that um, they're being fair and transparent and we're not disadvantaging groups.
0: Yeah, really really fascinating actually on the the publications and being tracked by the gender of the person publishing. I mean, researchers research all kinds of things, don't they? Um, But it's uh, (laughs) really, really actually fascinating and and eye-opening that that's been looked at. What do you what do you think, Erin? I mean, one day Mm -hmm. (laughs) things will get back to some kind of new normal. Um, What do you think are the lessons that that we as leaders and organizations need to take moving forward when the pandemic is gone, when it comes to things like um, work life harmony and flexibility and adaptability?
1: Yeah, that's that's a particularly hard question because um, I think we have some sense that there's going to be a light switch and things are going to go back to normal um, when it, it doesn't feel to me like that's going to occur at all. Um, I watched a movie with my kids the other night and my oldest turned to me and said, when was this movie made? Uh, after a scene that sexualized a woman. And um, I pointed out it was only about 10 or 12 years old. And he was aghast, um, and I it thought to myself, "What a process it's been, and how and and unequally distributed, for us to change our attitudes about um, women in the workforce, women in our society, um, and and how we view equality." I think that COVID has given us a bit of a kick in the pants in terms of being able to move some of this agenda forward um, in, a, in a good way uh, by highlighting the problems a bit more aggressively. And those of us who are in a position to be able to do something about it, the, the onus is upon us to do so. Um, but I also believe that it is it is a process. And so we're not going to return to uh, work next year in, in in an environment that everybody goes into work and suddenly we're more equal. Um, because we've seen the load that was put on women and we're determined to fix that. I think that we're going to have to continue to evolve. Um, And uh, that evolution should be deliberate. It has to be deliberate, uh, but it will be an evolution. It, It won't be a light switch.
0: This tweet was going to go viral the way that it did <laughs> because oh. my goodness, I mean, Siemens has what almost two hundred thousand followers. First of all, and you said this was kind of the first tweet that it went viral. So, as a as a uh, tech guru, what was your what was your thought there?
1: Well, so that uh, no, I did not <laughs> expect it to go viral, <laughs> um, uh, and in fact, it was terrifying. I mean, first it was amusing. I, the the woman involved and my manager knew that i was going to tell this story were and they were comfortable with it and felt like it it was a story that needed telling and so at first it was kind of amused and i was messaging back and forth with my boss oh look it's got a hundred likes and then <laughs> then it had 500 and <laughs> then it had a thousand and then it was going you know up and up and up and i went to sleep and the next day media started calling about uh, it. And so I spent the next day. I, I, I mean, speaking of outcomes, I, I don't think I accomplished very much at work um, <laughs> because I, I started fielding media interviews. And then the following day, um, after the, the media gave it a push, um, I woke up to emails from headquarters in Europe, um, which I, you know, I up until that that point, I'd been relatively confident in what I was doing. But the idea that now I people were paying attention at, at the headquarters of my company, uh, I got a lot more nervous.
0: Oh, I bet.
1: <laughs> so it turned out that they were really supportive. Um, the uh, it, it had actually come to their attention because I saw one of their social media team had been. Uh, going through the mentions of Siemens, which happens all the time, and and noticed that um, a former employee had said something positive about Siemens and remarked on this tweet. And so then she went delving down into it and discovered my tweet and then went and looked at, she said she looked at my replies on Twitter. She said that tends to expose more than people's tweets about who they are. And she just went and got behind it. She had the authority to do that. She just said, oh yeah, no, this is great and started broadcasting it in turn. And then it, it really just went insane
0: wow. and And what I love is the the support that Siemens gave. They um called your leadership a brilliant example of how we want to do things in the future, uh, focus on outcomes rather than on time spent at work. um and thank you for being a front runner for us. Um, so I can only imagine the amount of um, you know, following that initial fear <laughs> that, that from that head office call um, just. The the pride, I imagine, that you that you must have felt on the impact and and reach that your action had.
1: Yeah, I mean, there were two things. First of all, I mean there's I guess three. First of all, there's some embarrassment, right? I'm actually not telling my story. I'm I'm telling the story of, of a woman who is struggling and um, she didn't want to be front and center at all. She turned down every interview request that that was given. Um and, and so you know it's a little embarrassing being lauded for something that that it, it, as my co-managers pointed out everybody at my site probably would have done exactly the same thing and has been supportive of challenging times before and so suddenly i was front and center as having been extraordinary for having done something that all my colleagues do every every year um i think the second thing was yeah i was i was very gratified it was getting the attention and i got hundreds of stories, many of them emails from internally at Siemens with people telling me how either, you know, good stories about having been supported by managers in difficult times or horrible stories about having been fired because they were pregnant um, or, you know, experiencing all kinds of discrimination and challenges. Um, and I guess lastly, it was just proud of my organization because, I I had the opportunity to talk to several of the CEOs of the different divisions of of Siemens and the message they were saying was they were working really hard to change the culture of a massive organization. So often they had no idea whether or not they were having any impact because they can't look down on what's happening on the line and in all of the little offices Um, and this was an opportunity for them to note that indeed it was working at least somewhere and for them to highlight that to to be able to emphasize the change that they wanted to see and so I was I was really pleased by that
0: now let's let's shift gears Aaron you are Passionate about about tech, and um, you are an advocate for the tech industry in your role as president of Saskatchewan's uh, technology advocacy organization called SaskTech. You advise to universities, colleges, and government, and you kind of self-identify as a, as a tech kid from the '80s. And so we're same vintage, just a, a few months separated here. And so so let's go way back. So so let's talk about life as a as a tech kid back in the '80s uh, when you know tech maybe wasn't as cool as it is these days <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah no it, it um growing up with interests that were divergent from uh most people uh i, I think is challenging today as it as it was then um but uh, in those days tech was uh was the the geek and the nerds uh, out there and and there were <laughs> movies made all the way through the 80s and 90s and uh, about our generation and the discrimination and and bullying that that we received and yeah absolutely I was on the front line of that unfortunately uh, switching schools to avoid uh, terrible situations um, but um, yeah it was it was something I liked it wasn't going to change who I was
0: yeah so a passion that that you had I mean when you look back do you remember when that kind of passion for tech was first ignited uh,
1: I I don't think I I mean it. My dad brought home a computer in 1984, I guess. It was an IBM PC, maybe 83. It was the original IBM PC, and, and uh, it was a piece of magic. But I, I remember actually playing a text adventure game on the mainframe, on one of the consoles in the mainframe at University of Waterloo when I was five years old um, or six, just just beginning to read and having my dad read stuff out to me as I was... Uh, giving it commands, so um, I think, like most modern children <laughs> from a very early age, my exposure to tech made me interested in it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and let's let's talk about bullying, Aaron. You're you're of course a father. Um, we know that if we look at the range of experiences that that kids and teens, in particular, face, especially these days. Uh, in particular, related to tech, right? We think of um, cyberbullying mm-hmm. and all of the platforms now. Um, you know, different than than it used to be, kind of back in back in our day, um, but yet just as impactful. And so, so let's first. I mean, first, please share with me some of those experiences that that led you to have to change a school.
1: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't because of tech. I think it was, it was more because of who I was um, as a person. And um, bullies look for targets. And I was an easy target. I was uh, relatively innocent. I was nice. Um, and at least I think I was. My mom told me I was nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was young. Uh, I had skipped kindergarten. So I was a year younger than everybody else in my class. And um, that was a mistake. Um, I think that looking back, my whole family agrees that it's not a race to get through. Uh, Lord knows I wasted enough time after university. (laughs) (laughs) uh, So, um, you know, it it was, I have no idea exactly what it was, but I kept putting my foot wrong. I kept being too uh, socially awkward in situations, lacking a maturity to be able to manage um, the, the situations in the classroom. Uh, and on the schoolyard, and I paid the price.
0: Who did you reach out to for for kind of support, or how did you make sense as a as a as a young child of of? people treating you in less than ideal ways. So it's
1: interesting, in the 80s really, there wasn't the infrastructure around supporting kids who are going through challenges like this. Um, I watch my kids uh, encounter momentary momentary experiences of bullying or describe somebody being cruel on the school ground and um, the response from administration is is light years away from what the response was in the 1980s, Um, it really wasn't. It just wasn't acknowledged, I don't think at all. Or if it was, nobody really knew what to do about it. But my dad is a clinical psychologist, and my mom has a bachelor's in psychology as well. And and they, um, I, I mean, they were the people who I turned to. There was really nobody else. And so I learned a lot of skills that I had a very hard time applying at the time, but but have stood in good stead later on in my life. Crying in bed and having my dad chat with me, or or my mom
0: well if your your self now could go back and and speak to your younger self what what advice would you give to yourself
1: oh Lord I don't know just get through it <laughs> it's uh it's not a uh, you know what everything the whole environment needed to change and I, I mean it probably still does for for a lot of people um I probably still would have struggled I mean today. Um, just because I was young um, and there really wasn't, you know, I remember, I, I remember the challenge being that there were very few kids who had similar interests or at least who would talk about those interests. And, and so I would find one or two people, but um, we would all be the, 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 the target of bullies. Um, and as I got into bigger and bigger schools, um, I found more people like me um, and it's interesting because now I'm in a company, and, and almost everybody's like me. Like we all, three hundred
0: seventy-five thousand all... people are well, like you.
1: <laughs> well, we have uh, a, a hundred and twenty people at our site in Saskatoon, <laughs> and, and you know, the, the, they're the people who, uh, well, they're not all of my generation, but all of the the the, the people who are in the same generation as I w- at my workplace went through the same thing, mm-hmm. and so we have that shared experience, and and it, I mean, it's not like we dwell on it um but uh you know had we all been together in a classroom in in 1982 it would have been a better place to be
0: right <laughs> yeah well we think you know we're we're fundamentally social creatures and that that need for belonging and acceptance whether it's in our immediate family unit whether it's in our school community whether it's our work environment that core need um, is universal for us to belong and, and be kind of seen and as accepted as we are. And, and that becomes so much more challenging, doesn't it, when we don't have people kind of like us that are around that either look like us or talk like us or have our same interests. Mm-hmm. And it certainly isn't to say we want a uniform approach to to you know any environment by any means, but can really be alienating, especially when we're developmentally just Figuring out who the heck we are in this world.
1: Well, so that's a really interesting idea that you know that that core community is is so valuable, uh, but when you challenge that with the need for change, with the need for cultural change, I think you encounter a really interesting dichotomy, and where that change tends to occur is is around the edges of your community, not not in a central part of your community. I and my you know, six besties aren't aren't going to fundamentally shift our belief system um, because somebody else in a different community has asked us to. Uh, but I'm on the edge of some communities, and um, you know, I mean everybody is, and it's it's those communities where I'm maybe not perfectly comfortable, where I am exposed to the things that are going to change my attitudes, and I think that you know figuring that one out. Um, had a really beneficial effect on on how to, on my understanding of how to effect change.
0: Hmm. Spoken like the child of a psychologist. (laughs) (laughs) You seem to have this deep passion for, for uh, human behavior and in fact went on to get your PhD in human-computer interaction, which I find utterly fascinating. So so first, describe the discipline to me.
1: Sure, so uh, we put computers on therapy couches and we asked them about their
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Um Human-computer interaction is the study of how uh, people interact with systems. Uh, it used to be just computers, but obviously uh, it's more complex now. Um, and how we can build those systems to to better work with people. So the reason you like your iPhone or your Samsung Galaxy or whatever it is that you have in your pocket and carry around with you, the reason that you like that is is my field. Um, all of the the things in there, from the uh, from the social media notifications and uh, management of behavior around uh, what you see and don't see in, in a social media app, right to How you touch the screen and it responds to you, Um, um, the the software responds to the hardware of of that tactile um, interaction. All of those pieces have been studied really carefully by my field. And what you're looking at is the result of several decades of work um, in, in a single device um and and that's everywhere around you so every single computer and electronic device that you interact with is informed by this
0: field and and a massive understanding of human behavior that goes into design and functionalities i imagine Mm -hmm. yeah yeah
1: And, and and it's very interdisciplinary it involves ethnographers and sociologists and psychologists and uh sometimes economists um uh, and and in the last 10 years, there's a fortunately been a a, a great move towards a, a ethics experts as well being involved. So yeah, it's it's a very interesting field. I, I watch AI and and machine learning say if only we had some field that, looked at how people are going to interact with AI and ML. We should establish one. And all of the professionals in my field are saying, hello.
0: Hello. (laughs) See us, please. We're here. (laughs) Well, well, this must be a massively um, growing and, and exploding discipline, I imagine, more and more as the years go on. Sure, most
1: most people think of this as user experience. So we talk about UX experts and and user experience. That that's my field, um, and and that's where that comes from. So yes, it's it's enormously bigger than it was thirty years ago, um, and it's even bigger than it was uh, since I graduated ten years ago.
0: Now, now, I'm reticent to ask this question because I feel like we could have a whole other podcast on it. But 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 when you you know pull out your proverbial crystal ball and look to the future. I mean, what things do you anticipate will continue to grow and evolve and, and maybe benefits that we'll see in our day-to-day lives um, based on this interaction between us as humans and, and the exploding technology that we see every which way?
1: Oh, that is a hard question. Um, I, I, prognostication is not my forte. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, uh, uh I, I mean, it, I think we can easily follow any of the current trends in terms of um, more interaction and more communication and uh, and more bleed between our, our physical and online um, personas continuing to occur. <clears throat> there are certainly key pieces of technology that are going to have a foundational impact on our ability to do that. 5G is certainly one of them, um, creating spaces where... Uh, that were previously relatively sacrosanct, such as the driver's seat of a vehicle, um, are going to become much more connected um, in ways that are maybe even difficult to imagine um, realistically. Uh, I think that the it's interesting we're in a second renaissance of artificial intelligence. The first one was uh, in the 70s, and people got very excited about what computers could do, um, but we really just hadn't hit the processing power required um, to, and and the data storage necessary to be able to do the really interesting things. Uh, although I have a few professors who would argue with me about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're we're in. I don't know, either at the beginning or in the middle of it. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but that's going to have some profound impact on uh, on our lives as well, uh, the increasing ability to look at, at large chunks of data and um, how we're going to interact with it. I think maybe the one thing I would be happy to take a stand on is I think that ethics is going to be an increasingly important part of it. And um, our growing recognition that the stereotypes and uh, cultural touchstones, whether positive or negative, uh, of our society are uh, recreated in the algorithms that we make and the computers that we teach um, is, I think, a very valuable insight. And if we can manage that effectively, I think it's going to have a profound impact on the way in which um, our digital world interacts with disadvantaged groups um, and and it's my hope that there's enough attention on that, that, that it will make a big difference in the next decade.
0: What do you think of the, I think at times, pervasive fears that, that, people may have around AI and machine learning and technology, right? These these feelings that my goodness, we're gonna be obsolete and computers are gonna take over and jobs are gonna be lost. Um, and again, I realize it's a bit of a kind of large loaded question, um, but we just love to hear your Thoughts on that?
1: Sure. So this actually is an area of expertise for me. I, I work very heavily in terms of uh, labor market and how um, the labor market is changing as uh, digitization occurs in various fields, and uh, we've we've seen it happen already, right? So um, Amazon. Came in and completely changed our uh, the retail economy. Um, robotics came to automotive manufacturing in, in the 1960s. In and, and, and 1968, I think, was the first robotic arm, uh, and and it has accelerated. And so now there's you know one tenth of the number of workers in automotive uh, manufacturing that there used to be. So um, and every job that's there it looks different than it did 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, this is happening everywhere in, in my province of Saskatchewan. Um, we're very heavily agricultural. Uh, we have mining industry, we have an energy industry, and all of those are, are quite suddenly becoming very digitized as well. Um, and all of the jobs related to those are changing. We're going to be doing much more remote work for mining. Um, you know, one one hundredth of the number of people is going to be underground in in 25 years that, that, that are underground currently. So all those jobs are going to change. Um, what I'm interested in is what can we do about that? How can we take people who are five years from retirement and, and, and continue to allow them to do their job until they want to retire gracefully? How can we take people who are 15 years away and use their incredible domain knowledge to be able to inform the systems that we're building and teaching the next people how to how to handle the next generation without losing the the domain knowledge that they have. How can we take people who are just starting off in their career and uh, believe that they've done all the training they need to and reconfigure them to understand that this is gonna be an ongoing effort for the rest of their lives in keeping up with technology, that we have to learn new software every few years as our operating system upgrades in a a significant way on our laptops. Um, And how uh, how do we find a way to interest our kids in what the jobs of the future will be when those jobs don't exist yet? How do we give them the flexibility in their training to be able to take the steps towards uh, a future that's ill-defined? These are new problems. I mean, we we did this in the Industrial Revolution and, and it was awful (laughs) <laughs> people, uh, people, uh, you know, ended up as the urban poor in 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 cities, and as they migrated out of the countryside, and it was really hard. And we had to form unions to be able to manage it. Maybe we can do it a little bit better this time. Uh, and so this is this is I bend a lot of my efforts to this, uh, and and uh, and it's one of the most rewarding things I do.
0: Oh, I can imagine. I mean, it sounds. Uh, I mean equally probably overwhelming and unknown yet equally exciting. And, um, I mean, the reality is we're faced with the time that we're faced with, right. And and technology is what it is and it's growing the way that it is exponentially. And we have no choice as human beings to adapt to the changes that we are going to be continuing to be faced with.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know if you remember Eliza, the, uh, um, online psychology, um, program?
0: I that's do not the, actually. Oh, yeah, got, not. <laughs> it's
1: a good thing to go look up. It was, it was one of the very first kind of chat bots, uh, made and it was made to, to ask you very Freudian like, um, clinical psychology questions. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, I think that it's a really interesting study because it terrified people, uh, until they understood what the limitations of it were. Um, it terrified people into believing that this was the forefront of where people were going to lose their jobs. And then they realized, well, actually, no, um, there are still going to be lots of jobs. they are just going to look a little bit different.
0: Yeah. And that's um, the interaction piece, right? The field that you're in human computer interaction. And I think that interaction is, is a key word in the discipline that what we're talking about is ways that we can cohesively leverage the unique attributes that we bring. I think as human beings, we are utterly complex <laughs> um, uh, and rapid thinkers and processors of information. Um, you know, and I believe. I mean, we. we I don't know about Leza I'm just definitely going to go Google her um, and and look into this. Um, but you know, if anything, I think. The field as a psychologist uh, for me is growing only, it's not diminishing by any means. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, so the field of human computer interaction has uh, quite a bit of it that is actually talking about how people interact. Computers aren't meant to replace us, they're meant to amplify us or to enable us. And so uh, the field of computer supported cooperative work is is directly uh, to uh, aimed at that. And I think it's really interesting because in the last couple of years with COVID, we've suddenly seen exactly how much computers have enabled us to continue going. Can you imagine what this would have been like in the 1980s? Um, Everybody would have gone home and we had one phone line into the house and exorbitant long distance fees. And uh, nobody would have been able to do their work from home at all. Um, and we would have just shut down and the isolation would have been extraordinary. So computers have enabled this uh, connection that we just uh, would not have had uh, four decades ago when, um, if, if COVID had occurred. And so it, it, thinking about computers and change and development as being part of enabling the social process of humans, is I think much more rewarding than looking at it as some future where we're replaced.
0: As you're speaking, I'm thinking of my, my mother-in-law who bless her heart, never even really knew what email was um, You know, a few years ago. She's in her 80s, has been in jail, as she tells us, rightfully uh, in a long-term care home over the last year plus, um, but learned Facetime for the first time in her yeah. 80s, <laughs> and yeah. we thought, my goodness! First of all, thank goodness <laughs> she was yeah. open to, to jumping on the tech train, and and truly was someone who you know didn't even know how to open up an email yet and now has has gotten comfortable, um, has learned right because of course we can all learn. Um, and has been just such an asset to this very unusual time that we're in to remain connected. And, and while it's less than ideal, um, it certainly is um, much better than the absence of that connection.
1: Yeah, I, the one of the other lessons here is that we've finally started building things for people who are different from me. Um, in the 1980s and 90s, all of the software and hardware that we built was built by white men, uh, sometimes boys. And so every piece of technology um, really spoke to us. And, and if you've ever tried to program a computer at a, a very basic level um, or, or interact on the command line, it's, it's still like that. It was written by engineers who didn't want to have to type vowels because they couldn't type very well. And so they, <laughs> the ah. commands are the commands are very difficult to learn, and it's a huge barrier to access. Um, we're finally recognizing that technology needs to be built to be accessible to a broad range of people. Um, and interestingly, to be able to do that, you need a broad range of people who are there building it, um, because I have no idea what an octogenarian woman needs in technology who um, has not you know, worked with email before. We need to have her in the room. And then we need people who are expert at being able to speak to uh people who are not like them and you know, frankly that's not me that's not where my training is um, so you know to bring it full circle one of the reasons that it was very clear that it was worth investing in keeping women in in a workforce uh, all all ethical and uh, cultural reasons aside is because if we don't have a diversity in the workforce and in the place we're not building, Things that are going to be usable by a broad group of people, and so everything else aside, economically, we should be doing the right thing.
0: As you've been speaking, Aaron, I you know I keep hearing this like implicit thread in the background of um, just again human behavior and psychology, and so I you know I I have to ask you um, tell me what it was like being the, <laughs> the child of a, a psychologist
1: in in the 19 the 80s the graduate student society at the university of Saskatchewan in psychology um put out a, a, a gave t-shirts to everybody that said yes i am analyzing you and uh, <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> it uh uh you know i mean everything was a deconstruction of why somebody was behaving in a certain way in an attempt to Understand their motivations, and then figure out how uh, we could respond in a positive way that would have a good outcome. That was the way that our dinner time conversations <laughs> worked. Um, whether it was my parents talking about workplace challenges or or talking about school challenges for um, for me and and for my sister. So um, yeah, that that's what childhood was like. But it was a good education. It's really valuable. It was to be in good stead for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah. And it was, this just kind of the way, you know, it, it, we just get used to our families as they are. Right. And so for you with it is, right, okay, this is kind of the conversations we have at our table, which is different than when, you know, than when you're at a friend's, let's say for, for dinner, um, or did you have this awareness or when did you gain that awareness of oh, this might be a little bit different than what, what others may be hearing or seeing or the way that they're exposed to thinking. I actually
1: don't think it happened until I was off in, in the workforce. So I, as you mentioned at the beginning, I was in an, an acapella group. And an acapella group, like any band, um, we were on the road for 10 months out of the year. We did 350 shows. Um, and uh, I suddenly realized that my colleagues didn't have the kind of self-awareness about um, uh, emotional challenges as being a legitimate part of how you would address um, your workplace um, or a you know, or school or, or whatever else, that they really hadn't ever had an explicit conversation about how they felt about things and why and what we could do about it. It was like, well, this is how I feel. And (laughs) and that was the end of the conversation. Well, okay, I guess you feel differently than I do. (laughs) The band breaks up. And so um, (laughs) we had had to develop uh, from kind of first principles, uh, new techniques for being able to get along when we spent 23 out of 24 hours in each other's presence.
0: My goodness, I mean, the, the workplace dynamics of a small team, I mean, tell me a little bit about what, uh, you know, the, the joys, I imagine there must have been a ton of fun as well, you're kind of on the road, and it sounds also exhausting with 350 shows in a year, um, but also challenging, right, small quarters for a small mm-hmm. number of people, so tell me the kind of good, bad, and ugly of, of the, the work environment <laughs> uh, as an a, a cappella singer
1: well you're poor that's definitely one thing uh, we were at the age where all of us still had a safety net and we were privileged enough that we came from backgrounds that our families could step in if and we could always go home if things went wrong um but uh the the labor of being poor um was something that i had not re- i mean when my parents didn't have money when i was a young child i, I was pretty sheltered from it um and by the time i was sufficiently self-aware, my dad was, had a faculty position and, and we were paid enough that we didn't worry excessively about money. But suddenly I was back into a situation where I was poor. And that was hard. Um, and you're exhausted and you depend so deeply on the health and well-being of the people around you. And you have to trust them because you're getting on stage and you're performing in front of hundreds of people several times a day. And when you do that, if somebody does something inappropriate, you're, you're in a school performance and, and somebody says something horribly inappropriate, that, that's it. You're, you know, all of the investment that you've gotten to that point is, is, it could evaporate. Um, so we had to find ways to be able to trust each other. And, and even more than that, and, and this is, I think, the, the lesson that has stuck with me. Is that it doesn't matter how much you trust people and it doesn't matter how good your intentions are, you need systems in place that are going to help you uh, be fair, um, ensure that trust stays, and help you recover from mistakes uh, and ensure that they don't happen as often. And, and so that's really, I think, what we learned more than anything else. We learned not to talk to each other between the second and third show. We were just too grumpy. There was nothing positive yeah. going to happen, right? We learned that we played paper, scissors, stones to determine who was uh, sharing what hotel room and who would get the extra one because it was, you know, it was random, but it was about as equal as we could make it. Uh, and anything else was too complicated. Uh, we, you know, we learned that um, that somebody had to be the road manager. Uh, somebody had to be the one who was responsible for making sure everyone knew what time they had to wake up and be in the vans in the morning. And there was somebody who had to be responsible for the financial stuff. It couldn't be co-managed or it couldn't be a group. And so those kinds of lessons uh, really have, uh, I mean, they've sustained, they apply in every workplace. They supply, apply in, in, in every kind of cohabitation environment as well. So they were really valuable. They're hard learned though.
0: Absolutely right those um, systems whether they're informal which they typically are you know or more formal in larger organizations and what you're describing is those pause points right the separation Mm -hmm. show two and three let's take a break people Um, the fairness and equity right we know that's a critical Mm -hmm. part of um, healthy work environments and clear delineation of roles and responsibilities and when we can get articulation of of these things and I'd say Perhaps most importantly, um, the self-awareness piece. So we, when we think about emotional intelligence or emotional quotient so ei or eq um, you know really at the essence it's about us all cultivating an ability as individuals um, regardless of what our role or title or position is it an organization to be self-aware right of how we're feeling and doing and this doesn't mean analyzing our feelings to no end but being aware oh am i kind of grumpy today because i didn't sleep well ah maybe not a good day to go in and give susie a performance um, management discussion right? Right? And when yeah. we can pause and say, oh, wait, 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 let me check in. I'm not going to be optimal at this. And then when we have that ability, ah, oh, Susie's not just lazy. Um, Susie's dealing with some stressors at work. So what I'm going to do is approach it in a supportive way, right? And I think the heart of, of effective leadership is at its essence, having a very good awareness of own and other emotions.
1: Yes. And and recognizing you're still going to make mistakes. Um, so I had to really interesting challenge recently in which I, I actually offered a woman less money for the same job than I offered a man. Uh, this was just a few months ago. Um, and uh, two, two people equal in every respect in the sense that they're both coming out of the same program. Uh, we rated them in the same way. Uh, we had jobs open and we hired the woman in January and said, um, here's your salary and then we hired the man for where we offered a job to the man. He it turned out not to take it, but four months later, um, and we offered him a salary. And there's a system of salary reviews so that we go and we look at at, at our historic um, uh, salary offerings and, and the rest of the team and, and make sure that that it's in line. My manager and I and the other hiring manager involved had not noticed that discrepancy, um, but we had given her several thousand dollars less than we gave him, uh, than we offered him. But the system caught it that and and allowed us to say, "Oh, oh, <laughs> wait, that that's wrong. We can't do that." Um, you know, whatever whatever unconscious bias exists here, whatever whatever was at play, um, y- you know, we we we've caught it and now we can fix it. And so we went back and gave her more money um, because obviously she was worth that if we were willing to offer um, more money to to a man for that position. Um, but without that system and without the the comfort in admitting that we'd screwed up and, um, and without knowing that we wouldn't be taken to task for it, that it was actually going to be a positive thing that we'd caught it, um, without all of those things, uh, she would have been ending up paying less, and uh, maybe I wouldn't have even known about it.
0: Thank you, first of all, for for sharing that. Um, and I'm thinking of one. Line that comes from one of our descriptors. Um, There's something called the Psychologically Safe Leader Assessment, which, fun factoid for the listeners, is a free self assessment that any um, leader can take to identify um, areas of strength and areas for improvement Um, when it comes to leadership. This is a a resource that I um, have created that's public domain and aligns with our National Standard of Canada. For psychological health and safety in the workplace and one descriptor that we have of one of the attributes of psychologically safe leadership is a humble awareness of one's personal limitations and biases and you are just beautifully illustrating an example and also illustrating the antidote which is when we can have a formalized structure or system it can help us capture those errors when they do inadvertently occur
1: Yeah, I actually wrote about that experience too for Siemens on uh, the Ingenuity blog. And um, it was really remarkable that uh, people considered it exceptional that I was willing to talk about it. Uh, I thought that was more illuminating than the experience itself in many ways, uh, because it meant that uh, people feel extremely threatened by having made a mistake like that and believe that it will be held against them. And so it, it may be that there's a... Uh, you know, the, the self-awareness is valuable, but creating a culture that allows that those kinds of mistakes to be um, recognized and resolved without undue consequence is also very important.
0: Abs- absolutely, that you know when we are able to know that our the person that we report to, one above, or our broader organization. Has our back, right, and and For is sure. able to, um, you know, trust us, and and we're imperfect beings as humans, right? That we do have in common. Every every single one of us, we're going to mess up, or we're going to mess up a bunch of times, and and uh, you know, it's not perfection that we're seeking, but when we can have those pause moments, have that self awareness, um, and be able to in a in a supportive environment, be able to kind of rectify and and strive to do better. I mean, that's. That's about all we can do and, and pretty great when we can have that openness in our work environments to to make those mistakes. Now, Erin, you also, prior to joining Siemens, um, were in a tech startup. and. I was um, very stunned to see, like, no turnover in your team um, of seven years. And so, tell me a bit about what your lessons were learned in, you know, a high-intensity environment as startups are um, in a small environment. What what were the critical ingredients there that helped you keep turnover so negligible?
1: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I think it's a lot of factors. First of all. Uh, Saskatoon isn't exactly the center of the tech world. So uh, I think regardless of, of what a great company we were uh, or a good place to work, um, simply the fact that there weren't that many choices that were didn't involve uprooting yourself and moving somewhere else uh, certainly had to have played a factor. Um, the other thing is, it was, you know, things were going well. Um, and that that helps uh, when when companies are doing well uh, when everybody's happy uh, for objective reasons you're making more money every year then that's a, a it's easy to be um, able to retain people um, you're not your ship isn't sinking so the rats aren't leaving right yeah. um, the, the, the other aspects were, I think that um, we didn't ever really buy into some of the more toxic components of a startup culture. Um, the company might have been there before I joined. Uh, but by the time I'd gotten there, several of the leaders had um, really reimagined the way that the company was going to work. It was still focused on on trying to be a, a startup, right? Move quickly. Um Get get a product out the door, uh, seize a whole bunch of market, um, be faster than everyone else, and more agile. Uh, but they didn't do it at the expense of people's lives. And you know, one of the leaders had had children, and um, that made a difference. He was able to you know recognize the necessity of balancing family life. Um, but uh, we we didn't have anywhere near gender parity. I think there was the first woman was hired right before I was, <laughs> um, and uh, the second woman wasn't hired for another three years after that. Wow! Uh, uh, so you know, some of it was simply that it was a bit of a monoculture, um, and and it's easier to to retain people when you don't have to negotiate uh around the challenges of 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 diverse opinions um and cultural backgrounds a lot of the people knew each other earlier um but I'm making a lot of excuses for you know one of the core reasons which was there was sensitive leadership um that clearly valued each employee the objective was not to burn them out. Um, if we burned out our employees, it was hard enough to replace them. We wouldn't have had anybody left. And, and then we would have had no company. Um, we valued them because we hired them all because they were um, highly qualified people. They've got master's degrees or, or were outstanding in their bachelor's program um, or had industry experience that we wanted to retain. And so by putting them first as often as possible, um, they felt valued. And by the other thing is that we told a lot of stories. We had a very strong corporate narrative, but it was a, a narrative of the people within it. Um, it was the leadership would tell stories that, uh, that clearly showed how they struggled um, professionally. Uh, and they would tell stories about successes of the individuals who were working with the company. Um, and we had a story, a shared story, uh, that we would reflect on on a regular basis of, of growth and, and progress. Um, and I think that that narrative, I think the idea of having a, a shared story about what you're doing, um, allows people to find their place and believe that they they can continue to find a place there.
0: underscore the incredible value of storytelling (laughs) within communities more broadly, certainly our families, our work environments, big or small. Um, And and really want to thank you, Erin, for taking the time to have um, this important conversation with me today and and sharing a bit of your story. Um, Thank you for being such a psychologically safe leader and and embodying the essence of of what psychological health and safety is. It, it, yeah, really a lot of admiration and respect um, for you. Thank you.
1: You're very, very kind. Neil Gaiman says, we owe it to each other to tell stories. And so you can add that to the the, the list of things that we can tell
0: each other. Absolutely. What to all the people leaders, managers, supervisors, uh, in big or small companies listening, what may be your kind of top pieces of advice when it comes to effective
1: and successful leadership? Me, you're asking me these things? I <laughs> don't know, I <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm just figuring it out. <laughs> um, I, I don't know, you know, I, I didn't directly manage a team for for most of my career. I, I managed the operational processes of our, our company. And, and before that I was in a partnership where we all had equal say. Um, and uh, when I started managing people and started having performance planning sessions with them, I realized that I that there wasn't a, a a cookie cutter way of going forward and and I realized how very quickly, how enormously complex it is. I'm about to do that again. I'm about to have another performance planning session with my with my team. We do it four times a year. Uh, and I mean, they can talk to me anytime, but this is a half hour for each one of them to just sit down and say, OK, where where am I going? Where did I come from? How are things going? What can I change? Where do I want to? Uh, what can I do to help them uh, get to their goals? And none of those are the same. And it's like this enormously complex and draining process to talk to them all. And I think it's the most worthwhile thing that I do in my company. Mm-hmm. Um, because giving them, again, that story, that personal story of where they've been and where they're going, and, uh, and that being an explicit conversation with me, um, I think it's probably the, yeah, it's the best thing that I can do. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, yeah, that, one, that one-to-one that personalized connection and by extension, the flexibility and adaptability that we have around that when we understand unique, whatever it is, circumstances, life challenges, uh, interests in growth and development. Uh, and we can't do that unless we take the time and it does take time, that's the reality, until we take the time to connect um, on a one-to-one basis. So, so thank you so much, Erin, for all your wise words. Um, I guess what I'd like to end by asking is a little bit of a fun question. Um, I'd love to know your top movies and if they're tech-oriented tech, tech oriented and <laughs> that would be an extra bonus, but we still have a little bit of extra time to be you know, watching and consuming media these days. And so what, what are some of your top movies uh, that you recommend? Oh,
1: goodness, you're springing this on me now. That's totally unfair. <laughs> Whatever movie I pick, we can find that it's problematic in some way.
0: <laughs> we won't judge. We won't judge. <laughs> uh,
1: um, do you know uh, it's an older movie, but it it remains one of my favorites. It, it's Gattaca. Um, it's I, I think it's Ethan Hawke and. Um, can't remember who who all is in it, but it's a uh, it's a story about how um, our genetics are only part of the story. Uh, if we lived in a civilization where you could pick the uh, the uh, the children that you could have according to the genetics that were most likely to make them healthy and smart, um, would that still Would that be the best thing for them? And and would it really determine that their outcomes are going to be positive? It's a fantastic uh, science fiction story, slow moving and and, um, remarkably deep for what it was.
0: Thank you. I have not watched that. And that is going on my watch list. It sounds like (laughs) lots of layers of human behavior weaved with ethics. um, And so thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Erin. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning into Tardigrade Talks. If you've enjoyed our conversation, I would love for you to subscribe and consider sharing with a friend. We have a breadth of free resources at tardigradetalks.com. Thank you. And I hope you join us again. Wishing you psychological health, wellness, and resilience until next time.